0: Good Friday, that's what we call this, Good Friday. It's a a day, that, for most of us, it's a day of uh, profound remembrance, a day of intentional reflection, where we remember the greatest of all sacrifices when, as John tells us in his gospel, God so loved his perishing world that he sent his only begotten son, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through his death on our behalf which is this event in history that that, that really happened and that although we would like to all say we believe, maybe even we'd even go so far as to say we believe we've been transformed by the reality of it, it still remains largely a mystery to us, doesn't it? It's, It's a mystery as we try to comprehend just all that it meant for the Father, for the God of the universe to offer up his Son for us. As I thought about it more, I think one of the only kind of human equivalents where we can kind of try to wrap our heads somehow around the gravity of it all is the way that we gather every year at 11 a.m. on November 11th, a day we call Remembrance Day, to remember the countless families, past and present, who sent off those dearest to them to secure the freedom that we now enjoy, many of them at the cost of their lives. I believe it was... John Donne, the poet who once wrote, No man is an island as an island entire of itself. Each man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And then concluded, therefore, that any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. Therefore, he said, never sin to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. And I think what he meant by that, at least was that whether they're our own sons and daughters or not, simply by nature of our common humanity, we are all diminished in some way by the death of another person. In Isaiah 9, there's a prophecy that speaks of God giving his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. A passage we read many times at Christmas where Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born unto us, a son is given, which is the title of my message today. Unto us a son is given. And although it's good to consider Isaiah's prophecy at Christmas time because it focuses our hearts around the fact of Jesus' coming, I think it's also appropriate to consider it at Easter because of the way that it focuses our hearts around the, the, the purpose of his coming, like the, what, why the son was given. Because I think we would all agree and know that incarnation, taking on of human flesh, that was not the ultimate goal of Jesus' coming. It was substitution. And the shadow of the cross hung over Jesus from his first infant breaths in the manger until his final breath under a darkened sky at Calvary. But without taking away a single thing from the courageous men and women over the years who have given their lives to secure our peace as a country... What makes the giving of God's son so much greater, so so, so much supremely more worthy of our remembrance, is that along with being an infinitely superior offering, God in human flesh, rather than diminishing us, Jesus' death profoundly enriches us as a human race. And as Isaiah goes on to say later in 53, chapter 53, it also secures our peace with God. And yet when you think about either of those acts of giving, while the value of them may not be different, what is absolutely the same about both of those kinds of offerings is the reality of it. And what I mean by that was that their offerings, both of them, uh, men and women who served uh, in, in wars and Jesus himself, their offerings were really and truly given. They weren't theoretical. They really had to offer them, right? In order to realize the promise of peace that they wanted to achieve, their offerings had to be really and truly given. And I think principally what we can already draw from that is this the fulfillment of what is promised always lies on the other side of obedience. The fulfillment of what is promised always lies on the other side of obedience. And as we gather together this morning to remember God's offering of his son and the reality of Jesus' obedience unto death, securing hope for what he promised, I want to look at that gospel story by way of its gospel prototype that we have here in our passage in Genesis 22. And the reason I want to enter into the reality and the, and the remembrance of it there, as opposed to just going directly to a New Testament account of Jesus' offering of his life is simply because, well, because being human, being finite human beings, which I'm just going to go out on a limb and assume that includes every one of us here today, we, we could never even begin to, to fathom the magnitude of what it meant for the God of the universe, the God who created all things to give His Son, to offer up His Son, and all that that meant to Him, we could never even begin to fathom that. But what the story of Abraham and Isaac does, which prefigures God's offering, is it offers us really kind of a a ground level access in order to enter in a, a, a human experience of a father offering his son by which we can begin to know, we can begin to understand something of the mind of God as well as his heart towards us in the offering of his son. And in order to help us do that, I want to look at our passage together this morning in just two ways. I want to show you the cost of giving and then the payment provided for. The cost of giving and the payment provided for. So if you close your Bibles and you have that passage with you, would you open it up again to Genesis 22? Follow along with me as we go through this, as we continue to focus our remembrance on the Son who was given. Okay, so let's look first of all at the cost of giving. The cost of giving. Now, maybe if you're not familiar with the story of Abraham and Isaac and the events that led up to this passage here where Abraham is asked to offer his son as a sacrifice, or maybe you just need a refresher, I think it's important we just stop for a moment. Let's go back and quickly just remind ourselves of what what the events are that lead up to this because the backstory of all this is actually essential in order for us to understand just what an incredible cost Abraham is being asked to give here. So just very briefly, Cliff Notes version. What we see in the previous chapters leading up to chapter 22 is that God calls this man Abraham one day to pack up everything, leave his homeland, leave everything he knows, and head out to a place that God will later show him. He says, take your family take, and, and go to a place that I will show you later. So he doesn't even tell him where it is that he's going, right? He just says, just head out and I'll show you. I mean, that was already a huge ask for Abraham, right? I can't even take my wife to dinner without telling her where we're going. (laughs) Can Can you imagine this conversation that Abraham had with his wife? Better sit down, honey, for this one. But God's covenant promise to Abraham is that if he will give up the comfort, give up the familiarity of his homeland, and trust him, God will give him two things. He will give him a land of his own to dwell in, and he will give him and his barren wife Sarah a son through whom God will create a nation as numerous as the stars in the sky. And although those promises seemed impossible, particularly the second one because Abraham was already 75 years old by the time God gave him this promise, By the time we get to our passage here in Genesis 22, God has already made good on both of those promises. He's led Abraham to the land that he's going to inherit, and he's given him and his wife a son, Isaac. But knowing the backstory, knowing all of that, now I think you can begin to see the problem for Abraham, can't you? Because not only is God calling him to... Offer up his one and only son as a sacrifice. That in itself is staggering already. But he's also calling Abraham to give up the only means by which the promise to create this nation as numerous as the stars in the sky could be accomplished. He's having to sacrifice everything. God's taking away all hope, it seems, for for the hope of this fulfillment of the promise to happen, along with asking him to offer up this thing which is most precious to him, his son, his one and only son. I don't know if you've ever had an experience in your life before where you've just had something that you wanted. You wanted so bad, so desperately, but whatever reason, you tried as hard as you could, you did everything you could, but you couldn't, you couldn't reach it. Only to basically give up hope, or maybe you did give up hope, and then somehow, it didn't even know how, but all of a sudden you It's a miracle. You you have it. You did end up getting that thing that you had longed for all this time, and now you have it. Maybe for you it was also a child like it was for Abraham and Sarah. Maybe it was finding that special someone to spend your life with. Maybe it was a career, a job, I don't know, whatever it is. But if you have had that experience before, you'll know just how treasured that thing can become once you have it, right? Right? I mean, you never thought you'd even have a chance of holding this thing, and now that you got it, oh man, like there's nothing anyone could offer you that would make you willing to offer up this thing. They couldn't tear it from your hands. But if you know that feeling, then I think you'll also understand just how incredibly costly this ask is from God as well. Infinitely greater than anything God has asked Abraham to offer up up until this point. I mean, in fact, this, th- there is no higher cost that God could ask Abraham to offer. And if you look at the language God uses there in verse 2, take your son, your only son whom you love. What's clear is that in, by, by describing Isaac in this language, God knows that's what he's asking for. He knows he's asking Abraham for the most treasured thing he could possibly offer. Now why would God do that? Why would, he, why would he ask for that? Well, what most commentators I read agree is that the reason God asked Abraham to offer up Isaac is likely because so precious, so treasured was this unexpected child for Abraham and Sarah that they had begun to shift To shift the focus of their worship, the focus of their trust and faith from the promiser to the promise. Which, if we're being honest, isn't that something that you and I still do all the time? We do this all the time. We focus on God's gifts to us rather than the giver. And often for far less noble reasons. And yet, this is what we see God doing. This is what he does over and over and over again in the Bible. We see it in our lives as well. Whenever we begin to wrongly order our worship like Abraham has done here. You see it clearly, for instance, in all kinds of instances in the New Testament when Jesus has these various interactions with people. uh, uh, Nicodemus, rich young ruler, the woman at the well. He, He seems to get through all the outside stuff, get right down to the heart of what they truly treasure, and then he asks them to trade that thing, to be willing to sacrifice that thing in order for him to offer them the thing that can truly give them what, this, what will satisfy the desire of their hearts. Why? Why? Well, because God is some kind of insecure child who can't handle us loving anything more than him? No. No, because of what God clearly states when he writes down on tablets of stone what he expects from those who follow him. Namely, the very first one, top of the list— you shall have no other gods before me. And the reason for that is simply because God knows no matter how good, no matter how wonderful, no matter how precious that thing may be, the promise can never offer you what the promiser can give. The hope is in the promiser, not in the promise. And so out of deep love, out of deep care for Abraham and Sarah, God tests Abraham here, asking him to sacrifice what had become his most precious treasure in order to remind him of the one place that his hope could truly be found. Now, if you think about it, Abraham could have said no, right? He could have said, sorry, nice idea, but you know what? No. I mean, Sarah and I, we finally got this child. We're going to We're just going to stay here. We're going to enjoy Isaac and stay in the camp in this new land you brought us to for as many years as we have left. We're, We're good. No thanks. But as I said when we began, the fulfillment of what is promised is only found on the other side of obedience. And the reality is that in saying no to God, if he had said no to God, Abraham would have been sacrificing far, far more. Would have been a Far greater sacrifice. But incredibly, in this amazing demonstration of faith and trust in God, who had already shown himself to be faithful to accomplish the impossible. I mean, the fact that they even had this son to offer was evidence of that. We read in verse 3 this. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Incredible. And as the story continues, and they just, they're traveling for three days and they get closer and closer and closer to the place on the mountain in which Abraham will bind his only son, raise his knife in order to sacrifice his son. You could just feel, can't you, the, the tension growing inside him as they get closer and closer to this place. And as they're going up to this moment, I mean, everything within, every fatherly instinct in Abraham must have just been screaming out, No, you you can't do this. I I can't go through with this. But that's how this story helps us, actually. That's how this story helps us, because if you can even imagine carrying out an act like this yourself with your own child, a child you love or care about, that then becomes the small window through which we can begin to understand something of the heart of God toward us, of the great love with which he loved us that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. The incredible cost paid in the giving of his son on the cross for your salvation. That's what it felt like. But what is unique about God's offering of his son, again, granting the infinite worth of the offering, is that where Isaac seems to be entirely unaware of the costly sacrifice his father is about to make, you see in verse 7, he's like, "Uh, we got all the other stuff for the sacrifice, where's the lamb? He doesn't seem aware of what's going on. Jesus was supremely aware of the sacrifice his father is making, and he willingly submits to it himself. Willingly submits to it. It's why we read in places like Hebrews 10, the voice of Jesus himself quoting Psalm 40 where he says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. But it's also why we see Jesus in anguish of soul. Sweating drops of blood in Gethsemane, praying, Father, if it is possible, take this cup away from me because he understood the cost of being given. And it's undoubtedly because we're human that whenever we think about, we focus our remembrance uh, of this day, we focus it on the sacrifice of, of Jesus, the, the physical cost he paid. The physical cost he paid in order to redeem us, the, the insults, the the slaps, the punches, the, the flogging, the crown of thorns, the nails, the spear. We, we focused on the physical cost, and there's no question. The physical cost Jesus paid to redeem us was immense. And yet, what we can tend to forget is that the spiritual cost, the spiritual cost of the sinless Lamb of God bearing the full weight of the wrath of God against our sin and the sin of the whole world and himself was an infinitely greater cost. You know, all my training as a preacher tells me, now this is the part where I'm supposed to apply this to us. I'm supposed to say, now, in light of that, this is what you should do. But I don't know. Given the the magnitude of this, the incomprehensibility of it, the only application I think of as appropriate right now is just to be quiet. Just to put my hand over my mouth and say nothing. For all of us to just sit in quiet awe and amazement at the cost willingly paid for you, willingly paid for me in the giving of this Son. That's what we do at Remembrance Day services, don't we? We pause, we take a moment of silence to remember. So that's what I want want to do right now, actually. I want to take a moment to just quietly sit and reflect on all this cost that was paid for us. And then in a moment, I'm going to ask if God leads you and you feel led, would you speak out a simple sentence prayer of thanksgiving? Let's begin now to offer up thanksgiving that we're going to give for all eternity because he so willingly paid this cost for us. Let's take that moment of silence and then offer these prayers. I praise you for offering your son in place of me. won't be the payment provided for. Payment provided for. We need to look at this because this is something else unique about the story of Abraham and Isaac by which we've been seeking to enter into the heart and mind of God in the giving of his son. For where Abraham was only willing to obediently offer up his son, and he was willing, what we celebrate today, the purpose of our gathering, is that God really and truly did offer his son. He really did sacrifice him on our behalf. And we know that Abraham was willing, truly willing to offer up his son because of what God says to him after he restrains him from following through on offering his son. In verse 12 there, look with me. He says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. Basically saying, "All right, Abraham, now I can see. I can see now from the willingness of your action that you truly have oriented your worship right again. Your heart has been reoriented properly from the promise back to the promiser. How does God know that? He goes on, he tells us, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And yet although Abraham was, was willing and ready, truly ready to follow through and offer his son in worship, what you see as you keep reading is this beautiful, I'm sure very welcome moment of substitution taking place. God restrains Abraham from paying the cost and then provides a ram to be offered in place of Isaac. Look at verse 13. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And in response to that that substitution, what we read in verse 14... Is this, so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Which is why I said, though Abraham was willing to pay the cost, God provided a substitute to be offered in place of Isaac. God, God was making, providing payment for the cost of giving so that Abraham didn't have to pay it himself once he saw that he was truly willing to pay it. But you see, this is where the story of Abraham and Isaac and and what we're remembering today on Good Friday now reveals some incredible parallels, but also one very significant, even more powerful difference. Consider this. Just as Abraham's son Isaac carries the wood on which he will be sacrificed up the mountain in verse 6, so too does God's son carry the wood of the cross on which he will be sacrificed up Golgotha. What a little uh, historical geography also reveals that this Mount Moriah, referenced in verse 2, where Abraham is to offer up his son, is the location, centuries later, where Solomon builds the temple. That temple is destroyed. It's then rebuilt by Herod, immediately beside a smaller mountain, a hill really, called Golgotha. Called Calvary, where 2,000 years ago, God's Son, whom he loved, laid down on the wood and was bound to it with rope as well as with nails. Only this time, there was only silence from heaven and no substitute was offered. Why? Because he was the substitute. Jesus was God's provision of a lamb and not given in place of one son only, but given in place of every son, every daughter who puts their faith in what his substitutionary death would accomplish. How rightly did Abraham name this place Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. Here on that mountain, it was provided for you and for me. Praise God. One of the parts of this gospel prototype that stands out most, to me anyways, is what Abraham says in verse 5. Look with me there. He gets, to the, gets in view of the place where he's supposed to go up and offer Isaac, and then he turns to his servants who are with him. I love that when Jack was reading it. He emphasized exactly what I wanted. We didn't have this conversation, but thank you, Jack. He says, you, you stay here with the donkey while I go over with, while the boy and I go over there. We will worship And then we will come back to you. What's going on there? I mean, it it sounds as though, at first glance, Abraham's either delusional or he doesn't truly intend to be obedient to God's command. Reading on, though, I mean, I think we see very clearly at least his intention was absolutely to be obedient. And when you see this story referenced later on in Hebrews 11, often referred to as the hall of faith, you see is that rather than being delusional, Abraham simply had such incredible faith in God's ability to provide that he believed, even if he did offer up his son, God would raise him back to life. He would receive his son back. Abraham trusted in God's ability to provide as well as to keep his promise so strongly, that it enabled him to be willing to offer up his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And because of his willing faith, God could now say to Abraham, now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And the result... Those of you who have read beyond this passage know God did go on to fulfill his promise. He did create a people, a nation through Isaac as numerous as the stars in the sky of which you and I are now a part if you know Jesus as your savior this morning. I love uh, pastor and author Tim Keller's comment on this whole scene when he imagines Abraham somehow being able to be transported through time so that he could Stand at the foot of the cross as Jesus is being offered. And he imagines this scene. He says, now Abraham could in turn speak God's very words back to him. Now Abraham could say to God, now I know you love me. Because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. I wonder, could you say that same thing today? As we gather together here to remember God's son given on our behalf could you say that same thing today as we stand figuratively speaking at the foot of the cross and consider the magnitude of what it meant for God to offer his son as well as the fact that Jesus willingly paid that cost in my place and in your place could you say that I know there's all kinds of circumstances all kinds of things that happen in our lives that can cause us to not believe in the love of God to doubt his love for us to doubt he truly cares for me My prayer for every single one of us today is that whatever hardships you have had to walk through, or maybe that you're currently walking through, whatever questions and doubts continue to plague your mind as a result of it, whatever treasured Isaacs you've had to offer up yourself, you would still be able to say, as we look at the love of God supremely demonstrated in Jesus, no, no. No, I do know. I do know that you truly love me. Because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. That's the demonstration of his love towards you for all time. That's the purpose of Good Friday. That's the purpose of God's perfect son being given. And why we gather every year to remember Jesus' obedience unto death, even death on a cross. Because, as I said when we began, the fulfillment of what is promised always lies on the other side of obedience. And the promise of peace with God, the promise of a restored relationship with God, given in the very moment that we lost it in the Garden of Eden, we see now here was fulfilled in, to us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Amen.